Welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Tom Thorpe. The Combat Morale Podcast explores what motivates people to fight or not fight in armed conflict. A quick disclaimer before we get to the action. The views expressed by any of the guests on the podcast are purely of a personal nature, do not represent the views or opinions of any organisation or government. With that disclaimer out of the way, it is season two, episode eight, and today I speak to historian Dr David Harrisville, an independent scholar with an interest in the Third Reich and the Second World War. I speak to him about his recent book, The Virtuous Wehrmacht, that looks at the relationship about the relationship between German competence, morale and ethical view of the world and their motivation, behaviour and morale on the battlefield while deployed on the Eastern Front during the Second World War. David's book is published by Cornell University Press. He spoke to me from his home in the USA. David, welcome to the podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself how you became interested in the German Wehrmacht on the Eastern Front. Sure. Uh, so thank you so much for uh, inviting me on today. Um, so I am a uh, scholar who focuses on the Second World War, um, in particular the history of the Wehrmacht, uh, that's the German military on the Eastern Front fighting against the Soviet Union. Um, I've taught at the University of Wisconsin-Madison uh, and Furman University, uh, both in the United States. And uh, my interest in uh, World War II and the German army really goes back to childhood. Um, I remember playing with little plastic soldiers uh, with my dad when I was about four years old. Uh, so it started as this you know, sort of you know, innocent little uh, childhood fascination. Um, but as I got older, um, it got a lot more serious. And I started reading books about World War II and uh, especially from the American perspective, reading people like Stephen Ambrose and you know, reading about D-Day and the Western Front. Um, and then one day my dad um, picked up a book about the Eastern Front um, and he read it and then he gave it to me. Uh, and I think this was in high school uh, and I read it. Uh, and it turns out actually it was written by like an ex-Nazi official of the Wehrmacht, which I didn't know at the time. Um, but in any case, I, I found it fascinating that there's this whole um, side of the war that I didn't really know much about. Um, I think you know, most Americans don't really know much about it. They focus on you know, D-Day and, and the Western Front. And um, ever since then, I've, I've been fascinated by the German side of the story. Um, and I think a lot of that is because they're the bad guys. Um, like to me, the good guys kind of make sense, right? Okay, you're fighting against a bloodthirsty, bloodthirsty dictator. I can kind of understand that, but I've always been interested in like, how do you possibly explain what, you know, what the Germans are thinking who are fighting on, you know, the, the wrong side of this conflict. Um, so I, I did my um, master's degree looking at chaplains in the German army uh, on the Eastern Front, and then it kind of expanded to look at uh, morality and motivation and trying to understand uh, kind of what's in the head of the German soldier uh, fighting in the Second World War. So I wonder whether we could start by talking a bit about the nature of fighting on the Eastern Front. Now, for a long time, there was something called the clean Wehrmacht idea that emerged after the Second World War. Could you tell us about this term and why it's largely a myth? And what does new research tell us about the nature of the Wehrmacht's war on, in the East? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for many, many decades after the war, 
um, in Germany um, and also really the UK and the US around the world, um, there's this belief that the German army, um, in contrast to say the SS, um, were relatively upstanding and honorable folks, um, that they had not really participated in the atrocities of the Third Reich. Um, they were kind of following a code of honor. Um, you know, individuals like Erwin Rommel are kind of held up, or the, the July plotters in 1944. Um, the army is seen as a place that is kind of far from Nazism, even maybe resisting Nazism. Um, so it's this whole constellation of ideas that really coalesces around, you know, the honorable Wehrmacht, the honorable, decent German soldier who's just kind of doing his job, but um, stayed away from the worst aspects of the Nazi regime. And this idea has really been popular. Um, scholars trace it to the end of the war. Um, I put it a little bit earlier but it's been very influential in German society um, up until relatively recently, um, as more and more research has come out that uh, really since the 1970s, that's overturned um, all of these ideas about the honorable Wehrmacht. Um, scholars uh, have uncovered that the Wehrmacht was responsible for the essentially the murder of about 3 million prisoners of war on the Eastern Front, um, turned something like 70,000 villages to ashes, um, something like 15 million civilians died, is murdering civilians at a, uh, an astonishing rate, stealing food, ransacking the whole country. Um, and really, the Wehrmacht is now seen as having fought not really a conventional war, um, but a criminal war, a Vernichtungs. Krieg, uh, which is the German word for war of extermination, um, that was you know, largely racially motivated, the idea of destroying the subhuman Slavs and Jews and other kind of racial enemies on the Eastern Front. Um, so it's taken a very long time, um, but people are, are starting to recognize um, that the army was not this you know, mythical, honorable uh, organization that it, it was seen to be. So staying with that idea of this sort of clean Wehrmacht uh, myth, what were the notions of morality and ethics that motivated the soldiers under this idea that was prominent during the post-war period? Yeah, um, so after the war, and I would also say during the war itself, um, if you look at the kind of self-image of the soldiers, um, the way they write about themselves um, it, they kind of emphasize all of their virtuous qualities, um, qualities that would, would be recognized in German society at the time as, you know, exemplary, um, things like uh, doing your duty, uh, bravery, sacrifice, uh, kind of giving of yourself for your comrades or for the people back home, uh, notions of honor, comradeship, the idea that you're you know, you're part of this community of soldiers and you're taking care of the men next to you. Um, so those are all kind of these military virtues, uh, patriotism, uh, the idea of, you know, fighting for your country, which of course isn't, you know, exclusively German. Uh, a lot of these things aren't. Um, soldiers also describe themselves as uh, hardworking and clean and sort of good family men, like guys who, you know, they take care of their, their wives and their kids back home. And even when uh, some, some of the letters that I went through um, would contain dried flowers. 
So they would send flowers home from the Eastern Front, uh, you know, for their sweethearts or their wives. Um, so they they kind of describe themselves as these sort of wonderful moral people um, who are doing their duty. Um, and part of this is also um, ideological. Um, so they also describe themselves, at least during the war, often as um, kind of devoted followers of Adolf Hitler, as um, you know, good members of their racial community, um, as kind of strong and hard people. You see the word hard used a lot uh, by Germans, which means this kind of toughness, like a merciless kind of attitude, um, being merciless toward their enemies. Um, so taken together, um, you, and, and there's this kind of overlap between the, the more Nazi values and what I call more traditional values, values that, you know, people would have recognized in Germany long before the Nazis came to power. Um, but all of it really added up to a view that, you know, overall, the German soldier was a decent guy. He was a good guy. He was following the rules and um, had all of these, you know, exemplary traits that other people could look up to. So you've got that, you've described the sort of the post-war image of this sort of motivation of the soldier on the East Front. Now, is this reflected in the diaries, letters and research that you've done? Um, it, the the post-war image really reflects the way German soldiers describe their own morality or view of morality uh, during their occupation of the East. I would say absolutely yes. Um, so one of my uh, main arguments in my book is that the post-war myth of the honorable Wehrmacht really gets started during the war. And if you look at the letters, and these soldiers wrote something like 10 billion letters uh, during the war. Um, so this is, you know, an amazing uh, level of correspondence. Um, the way they describe themselves during the war um, is very similar to, what, to this myth of the post-war period. Um, so I argue that the myth actually gets started during the war and that it's created largely by the soldiers, um, particularly through all of these letters home where they're, they're kind of, telling their loved ones what their experience is like on the Eastern Front and kind of how to perceive what they're doing. Um, and out of that, one of my key findings, uh, which I think is probably the most disturbing thing that I found in the book, is that soldiers generally adhered to the view that they were good men, um, that they were fighting for a righteous cause, something that, that they could really believe in on a moral level, not just a political level or an ideological, ideological level, but something they could really justify. Um, and they came, with all, came up with all sorts of justifications for why their behavior was correct or why they were being honorable, even as they were committing atrocities on an unparalleled scale. Um, and I have a, a couple of quotes I wanted to read uh, from some of the soldiers I studied. Um, one of them, uh, Wilhelm Moldenhauser writes in 1941, um, quote, and now the Germans are here and the people can always see for themselves that the Germans are decent, nice guys. Um, so that's one, one of these kind of righteous cause ideas. Another one, uh, we must win because we fight for the more righteous cause. Uh, that's Willy Hagemann. Um, so I found this, this to be very fascinating and terrifying at the same time that these guys who we, we now know were committing all kinds of atrocities 
um, somehow viewed themselves as honorable, decent people um, in the midst of this war of extermination. Um, so a lot of my research is trying to figure out just what kind of mental or moral gymnastics um, these guys were doing to be able to, you know, to get to this accepting of what they're doing on a moral level. Um, and uh, one, one related point, um, they, they spent a lot of time not only talking about how, how good they are, but how evil their enemies are. Um, and so, you know, how terrible the Soviets are and how they've ruined the country um, and, you know, the Germans are going to do a better job. Um, so there, there are kind of two sides to the coin of we're the good guys and look at these horrible people uh, that we're fighting against. So that leads me on to my sort of next point is what factors, what influences shape this worldviews and soldiers' notions of right and wrong? So um, I, I identify um, a few major um, sets of influences on, on how soldiers think about right and wrong. Uh, one of them is Nazi ideology. Um, so the Nazis, and there's been some, um, some very good research about this, um, the Nazis had their own sort of moral system. It's a very twisted, you know, not one that we would like really recognize uh, today, but uh, the Nazis did have a kind of idea that anything that helps the German race is good. And anything that uh, you know, that hurts the German race is bad. Um, so they they did have a kind of moral logic, and uh, soldiers were certainly influenced by Nazi ideology in a lot of ways. A lot of them were in the Hitler Youth um, growing up. Um, a lot of them uh, were subject to intense indoctrination as part of the Wehrmacht and part of their training. Um, so they're certainly absorbing a lot of these ideas. Um, so that's one source of, of moral thought, if you will. Um, another one I, I identify is the military honor code. Uh, so the German army had roots going back, you know, hundreds of years um, and all sorts of, of internal rules and regulations and ideas about what a soldier should be like. Um, and uh, so there's this kind of chivalrous tradition that soldiers are supposed to um, you know, not harm innocent people. They're supposed to treat prisoners well. You've got like the Geneva, Geneva Conventions that Germany signed off on. Um, so there was this kind of sense of uh, a military honor code that went back a long time. Um, but alongside that, there was also an idea that was very popular um, that kind of shaped the moral thinking of soldiers um, that Isabel Hull terms military necessity. Um, so this was a kind of utility utilitarian idea that was fairly, fairly popular in the German army that um, anything you can do to win the war decisively and quickly is good, even if there are a lot of casualties. Um, it's kind of like the ends justify the means. Um, so some of this thinking is certainly present uh, for soldiers as well. Uh, religion is another influence. So about 95% of Germans were um, of one Christian denomination or another um, at the time. And so most soldiers um, had some kind of attachment to religion. So they uh, definitely absorbed moral ideas from there. Um, and then finally, uh, middle-class morality is another big influence that I talk about. Um, this is, these are kinds of the run-of-the-mill ideas about what it's like to be a sort of a good German, uh, being hardworking, um, again, those sorts of family values, duty, uh, cleanliness is a big one. 
Um, so taken together, um, I really kind of identify you have the Nazi ideas of morality, which are relatively new and very much based around race and biology on the one hand. And then you have this other group of values that I, I kind of put under the heading of traditional morality um, because those are a little bit older and um, they're, they're really kind of centered around the 10 commandments, the value of human life, the golden rule, um, ideas that you know today are still uh, certainly very much with us. So overall soldiers get this kind of blend of Nazi ideas of right and wrong, along with some older ideas as well. Um, and, and sometimes those are in conflict and sometimes they actually blend together um, in disturbing ways. Uh, and uh, so for, for example, if you take a, a value like patriotism, right? Like the love of nation, which is very deep in German society at the time, well, you could um, kind of make the leap to, uh, to sort of loyalty to the German national community, the racial community of the Nazis. Uh, yeah, so, um, so I was using the example of um, nationalism and patriotism. Um, so there are some soldiers who, um, you know, really the vast majority of soldiers had this general love of their country, desire to sacrifice for their country, um, but that could easily become entangled with Nazism. So you could be sort of sacrificing for Hitler or sacrificing for the, the Nazi racial community. Um, so there could be a, a lot of overlap between the traditional moral values and these newer Nazi values. So would notions of morality import to German soldiers? Um, I would say yes. Um, and, and here's why. Um, so in their letters, and I, I concentrated on reading their letters, um, you don't see long philosophical treatises about morality exactly. Um, you know, they're not writing pages and pages to their parents about moral philosophy or something on, of that sort, but they do spend a lot of time explaining why they're doing what they're doing and explaining various decisions that they take um, and pointing out why these are acceptable or why they're justified. Um, for example, um, a lot of the soldiers write about why they are fighting and the war to begin with um, and come up with all sorts of different reasons uh, to tell their parents back home or you know whoever they're writing to. Um, some of them talk about religious motivations that they want to uh, fight a crusade against the godless communist. Um, others talk about how the German uh, German rule in Russia is going to be so much better than communism. So we're we're kind of crusading to make this a better place on a kind of liberation idea, um, and. Uh, also, on the level of individual actions um, on a smaller scale, they'll talk about uh, various decisions that they personally made, um, say, to steal food from Soviet families and things of that nature. Um, and uh, in many cases, they will attempt to explain to their loved ones why this was okay, why, you know, why this was justified in some way. Um, so... Um, the way I see it, German soldiers did care deeply about morality. Um, and I think at the end of the day, they didn't want their loved ones to think that they had become monsters um, or to think that they, 
they had kind of completely lost touch with morality. Um, they wanted to be seen as as good men, but they wanted to be understood. So how do these notions of morality shape individuals' actions on the battlefields? And in, with particular reference to the occupation of the Soviet Union and their interaction with Soviet citizens. Yeah, so... Um, what I'd say overall is um, soldiers' ability to convince themselves that they were the good guys, um, their ability to justify particular crimes that they committed, um, this ability to believe that they were fighting for a righteous cause, ultimately made them into better soldiers. Uh, soldiers who were you know, better able to follow orders, um, soldiers who were able to commit atrocities over and over again, um, and to still sleep at night um, with the conviction that what they were doing was morally acceptable. Um, and I think this is, this is a really important point um, because, and I'll, I'll use uh, the war in Ukraine right now as an example, um, from what I've heard, a lot of Russian soldiers don't quite understand what they're doing uh, in Ukraine and don't quite you know, haven't been able to come up with a good justification for why they're there. So a lot of them are deserting. A lot of them are, are kind of not following orders and things like that. Um, so a, a soldier who who can't really justify what he's doing, I think, is a, a worse soldier, right? He might not follow orders. He might not really um, fight with the kind of conviction that someone would have if they really believed in what they were doing. Um, so overall, I think this all these moral justifications uh, made soldiers uh, kind of a more terrifying instrument in Hitler's arsenal, uh, you could say. Um, and one, one point um, about their actions, especially towards civilians that I want to make, is um, you see a lot of rather strange gestures, um, kind of conciliatory, kind gestures toward the population on the part of German soldiers. Um, for example, there are soldiers who would share their lunch with uh, starving Soviet civilians or um, like give cigarettes to an old man. Or the, I came across one who chopped firewood so a Russian woman could survive the winter. Um, and I was trying to figure out, like, why are soldiers writing about this in their letter? Why are they doing this? They also write about all the atrocities they're committing. Um, but one kind of conclusion I came to is uh, they tried to uh, to kind of to make these small moral gestures that helped them to feel better about who they were and what they were doing, um, that they could say, you know, well, yes, I did burn down that village, but, you know, I shared my lunch with this, you know, this poor starving Russian the other day. So it's a kind of um, attempt to, I think, shore up their sense of self and their sense that they, you know, they really were the good guys, um, that you see these these gestures, which at the end of the day didn't really affect the big picture of the war, um, but you know something as simple as, as giving candy out to a child could make you feel much more uh, kind of better about yourself and what you were doing. Now, there appears to me to be a con contradiction between German sort of pre-war civilian ideas of morality, such as Christianity, and the morality and the morality men used to justify their actions on the Eastern Front. Now, if so, how did men resolve this apparent dissonance? 
Yeah, so I would definitely agree um, that there was a, you know, a big dissonance between uh, the pre kind of pre-war norms, especially the idea of, you know, the value of human life and um, what soldiers were actually doing on the Eastern Front. Um, and soldiers, they resolved this in a few different ways. Um, so one of the most memorable that I came across is a lieutenant uh, named Heinz Rache, who writes that war has its own morality. Um, and this guy, he was actually a Lutheran pastor, um, but he kind of came to the conclusion that, well, we have to have a different set of morals during the war compared to before the war. Um, there are other soldiers who talk about uh, kind of becoming jaded and losing their sense of humanity as the war goes on a little bit, um, who perhaps, you know, started to believe there is no right and wrong um, after a certain period of time or, you know, all that they had seen. Um, so there, there are different responses, but um, the, the one that I saw the most is soldiers who often recognized that what they were doing was wrong on some kind of level, but still managed to explain to themselves or to their loved ones why this was justified, um, whether based on Nazi ideology in some cases or more traditional moral arguments. Um, so for example, some soldiers would write about, uh, well, we had to steal food from civilians because we didn't have enough food ourselves. You know, we're starving. This is kind of simple need to survive. Uh, was one argument that I saw. Um, other times, the argument is about um, how terrible the other side is. Um, like, well, we had to execute that, you know, that group of people, these civilians, because some of them were partisans, and they shot us in the back. And that is, you know, so dishonorable that this is an act of justice. Um, so they they kind of managed in various different ways to um, to justify what they were doing, um, even, even though at the same time they, uh, they expressed a fair amount of sympathy for their victims, um, which was something kind of striking that I found. Um, like they would say, well, you know, well, I feel really bad that we had to execute the, these prisoners, but, you know, if you look at what, what these guys were doing, you would understand why we had to do that. Um, so I, there was definitely a contradiction, but the uh, kind of the disturbing thing is how good soldiers became at rationalizing what they were doing. And then let's turn to the institution of the Wehrmacht. How did that organization shape notions of morality and did that have any? Um, I would, again, um, absolutely agree that it did. Um, this is a point where I could talk at, at quite a bit of length. Um, so I think on the on the institutional level, um, what the Wehrmacht did, um, so it's waging this war of racial extermination, um, right, this sort of genocidal conflict on the one hand, and you see that reflected in its behavior, in the orders that are handed down, etc. But um, the army um, did a really good job at, at a couple of things. One was in its propaganda to the soldiers it would give them a whole variety of different ways to, uh, to justify what they were doing. Um, so the army encouraged Christian soldiers to believe that they were fighting a crusade 
against the godless communists um, and encourage other soldiers to believe that they were liberating poor, oppressed people from Joseph Stalin and his communist tyranny. Um, so, and it also encouraged soldiers to believe that they were, you know, racial, racially superior and they had a right to wipe out Eastern Europeans. So they kind of gave soldiers like a menu of moral options. Like, do you want to be a crusader? You can be a crusader. Do you want, you know, do you want to be a liberator? You can be a liberator. Do you want to just exterminate, you know, be a Nazi? Uh, you can do that too. So it kind of created an environment where soldiers um, felt like they could individually come up with whatever rationale made the most sense to them. Um, so that's, that's one point I want to make. Um, a second is that, again, even as it's conducting um, all these, these mass atrocities, many of which were even planned before the war began, um, the army also spends a surprising amount of time and resources um, trying to sort of convince its own men that is, it's still a civilized institution, a law-abiding institution. Um, so a lot of commanders will issue very strange combinations of orders, telling soldiers to be merciless, but also telling them to be nice uh, to civilians. Like, don't, don't steal, um, you know, don't abuse civilians, etc. Um, we're, you know, we're going to follow the rules here. If you're going to take something from civilians, you need to pay for it. Um, and uh, so the army created a kind of cloud of legality, a cloud of, of like, we're civilized. Hey, look at all these regulations we have. We're telling your soldiers to behave and to be honorable on the one hand, while we're waging this criminal war at the same time. Uh, and I think what that combination did was also allowed soldiers to, um, to tell their loved ones back home hey, we're part of this civilized organization. Um, they, they would write about how, you know, stealing from civilians was not allowed, uh, for example, in their unit, because, hey, we're, you know, the army doesn't, of course, they were stealing all the time. But um, so the army creates this kind of, it, it's a sort of a chameleon-like organization. Um, you know, a lot of other historians uh, see the Wehrmacht as a kind of just a naked instrument of terror, um, which it certainly was, but at the same time, it also finds different ways of presenting itself as, as a more honorable, you know, institution that kind of follows the rules, um, even as it's, it's carrying out this, you know, all of these mass atrocities. Um, so I, I think in this environment, it became easier for soldiers to develop this kind of honorable sense of self. So how did the experience of combat and life on the front line shape notions of morality? I'm really sort of thinking about the, the changing geostrategic situation as the war goes on. Uh, so overall, um, one thing that I found is that many soldiers start to talk about how they are kind of losing their sense of humanity. Um, they're becoming hard is a word that you commonly see. Um, they are less able to empathize with other people. Um, and, you know, like there's one um, Kurt Neubauer who writes about how kind of early in the war, he felt bad for Soviet prisoners that he saw and, and how much they were suffering. And later on, it doesn't really bother him. Um, and you had soldiers who wrote a lot about atrocities in 1941. Um, and then 
not so much in the rest of the years of the war. Um, it's almost like they had seen it so many times or, you know, done, done these things so many times that it, it was no longer something they really felt the need to justify. It's kind of just part of the background of the war. Um, so there's a lot of um, kind of becoming jaded over the course of the war. Um, and uh, one particular example of that that stands out to me is Willie Reese. Um, who was a, um, a fairly well-known uh, diarist um, who uh, he didn't really want to be part of the war to begin with. Um, he wanted to be a writer, I believe, um, but he kept a meticulous diary that shows him descending from a kind of moral idealism at the beginning of the war when he really um, felt terrible about all of the things that he saw and, and participated in to... Um, not batting an eyelash when, you know, uh, when he saw some of the worst atrocities. Um, so I think um, there is a, a kind of, um, uh, what's the word, a kind of dampening of moral sensibilities as the war goes on. Um, another major um, development that I noticed over the course of the war was the, um, the sense of victimhood that I saw in a lot of the letters. Um, so many of the soldiers, um, after enduring you know, years of combat, freezing, you know, absolutely horrific temperatures, weather, um, mud, injuries, um, you know, having so many of their comrades die around them, um, a lot of soldiers started writing about themselves as victims. Um, as people who, you know, they were the ones who were suffering the most in this war, which of course wasn't true. Uh, if you look at many of, you know, the Wehrmacht's victims are doing much worse. Um, but there were soldiers um, who who felt like, you know, were were suffering the most, uh, and and I think that attitude. Um, kind of lent itself toward um, not having to feel any sympathy for other people, right? If you're the victim, then you don't have to feel so bad about, about your own victims. Um, and this, this victimhood narrative really um, takes off in the latter half of the war and continues uh, for many decades uh, as members of the German public look back on the war. Um, there are even some films um, that, that kind of display this concept that, you know, these poor guys were out there suffering in the cold and, um, you know, or, or ending up in Soviet prisoner war camps. And uh, if anything, you know, they're the ones we should feel sympathy for, uh, not, not the Soviets. Um, so those are a couple of ways in which um, notions of morality change over time. How did the sort of military padres and the Nazi political officers that sort of start to be deployed in units and later in the war um, shape notions of morality held by men at the front? Yeah, uh, so the Nazi political officers um, were instituted later in the war um, to essentially be in charge of indoctrination of the troops. Um, so they gave lectures, they held seminars, they gave out literature, um, and generally encourage soldiers to see themselves as, you know, superhuman Aryans who are exterminating the, you know, the, the subhumans uh, in the East. Um, 
in terms of the the letters that I read, um, soldiers didn't explicitly refer to these officers, but um, there are certainly many soldiers who um, were influenced. I mean, I'd say really the vast majority of soldiers were influenced on some level by Nazi ideology. Um, and there are some who uh, were members of the Nazi party, um, some who really kind of applauded the, you know, the murder of, of supposed racial inferior uh, people. Like, um, for example, Heinz Sartorio writes about the murder of thousands of Jews in Ukraine and how he approves of it um, because of his, his Nazi conviction. Um, so, uh, so that's the, the Nazi political officers. Um, as far as chaplains go, so there were about 900 chaplains, um, half Protestant, half um, Catholic uh, for Germany during the war, which already is kind of strange. I think most people wouldn't wouldn't suspect that the you know Hitler's army would have chaplains, but it was a tradition that that uh, carried over from previous um, you know Germany's history. Um, and um, here, there are some people who see chaplains as kind of advocates for atrocities or even genocide on the Eastern Front, uh, like Doris Bergen. Um, has been extremely critical of the chaplains. Um, I haven't personally come across chaplains who were um, quite to that extreme, um, but uh, I believe that just by being there on the Eastern Front, they had a kind of legitimating effect on the soldiers, um, knowing that you had pastors in your ranks uh, kind of gave you the sense that, okay, this, this can't be such a bad cause. Like, how could we be the bad guys if, you know, if this guy is right next to me? Um, and, and another area where the chaplains really had an effect on the soldiers was the idea of crusade. Um, so many of the chaplains were fierce anti-communists, um, and they promoted the idea that the Germans were fighting a kind of crusade against the godless communists. Um, to not only destroy their regime, but also to bring religion back to this land that has, you know, Russia had historically been Christian, but the Soviets were trying to kind of shut down all the churches. Um, so I see a quite a surprising number of soldiers who really bought into this crusading idea and wrote about it in their letters um, and even participated in reopening churches. Um, so the Wehrmacht, um, kind of spontaneously reopened probably thousands of churches as it advanced um, that the Soviets had shut down. Uh, and the chaplains were a big part of that. Um, so the, that was one, um, one area of legitimation for the war was we are good Christians who are bringing religion back to Russia. And one thing that occurred to me was that these, it's the amazing sort of detail that you get in letters of people describing these atrocities. Um, why did soldiers do that? Was that either to wash their consciences or was it because everybody at home knew what was happening and they needed to justify what they were doing? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I was very struck by the fact that they were willing to write about their own crimes um, and, uh, and even telling their mothers uh, some of the details. Um, like one of the most um, kind of emotionally shocking letters that I read was from um, a man, his first name is Henry, and he writes to his mother about stealing the last potatoes 
from a Soviet woman and her two children um, and how the woman is crying and telling them that, you know, she can't survive the winter now that they've taken the last of her food. And he describes this kind of horrifying scene. Um, so why did he do that? You know, why, why would soldiers even mention any of this? Um, there are a few answers you could give. Um, I mean, there are soldiers who were, you know, so convinced of Nazi ideology that um, it wasn't a crime to them, right? They might say, they might write about something because they approved of it, um, like Heinz Sartorio did, um, who approved of the murder of Jews. Um, but more often, um, I, I would argue that they were trying to find a way to salve their own consciences, um, to kind of explain to themselves why they had to do something, um, why they shouldn't feel bad about it, to justify it after the fact, and then to try to explain it at the same time to their families um, and try to um, kind of help their families understand why, you know, why the soldiers had been justified. Um, so I think letters were a, a kind of perfect place for soldiers to, to work out kind of their consciences and, and legitimate whatever they were doing. Uh, and it's one thing that's just amazing to me how successful uh, they seem to be at that sort of project. And my final question is, where can people learn more about your work? Um, so uh, the book can be found, uh, it's published by Cornell University Press. Uh, so you can find it on Cornell's website. Um, you can also find it on Amazon uh, and a number of other booksellers. Um, as far as uh, learning a bit more about me and my work, um, I have a website, davidharrisville.com. Um, which has, um, among other things, a series of digital maps that I created to track the, uh, the movements of the soldiers I study over time. Uh, so those could be of interest to some people. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, so you can, you can find me in, in a number of ways. David, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.